Well, growing up, uh, as I did in the, in the 80s, uh, Queen was naturally one of my favorite bands. And I particularly loved three songs by them, uh, Another One Bites the Dust, and We Are the Champions, and We Will Rock You. And there's a theme there. Um, they're all about crushing your opponent in some way. Um, they're played at sporting arenas around the world um, when your team is dominating the other team. And there's certainly something uh, that's immature about it and kind of middle schoolish. I was in middle school where like I'm the best and you're a wimp and I will crush you. And that's all part of the immaturity of Queen. But then there's also something about that that I still find to be really profound and somewhat like Psalm 98 here. This has been described as a divine warrior victory song. And you see in verse 1, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. One commentary said that this psalm celebrated the return from battle of Yahweh, the commander of the heavenly hosts. So think about when Yahweh went to battle against Jericho and tore down the walls. At that point, they might have sung something like Psalm 98, giving praise to their divine warrior. Or when Yahweh went to battle against Jezebel and uh, incinerated her false prophets. That's another time where they might have sung Psalm 98. Uh, His right hand and holy arm have worked salvation for him. Or when he went to battle with Pharaoh and crushed the gods of Egypt and drowned the army under the Red Sea. Again, they might have sung uh, Psalm 98. J.R. Tolkien uh, has this phrase that I love, and he calls them the fell deeds, F-E-L-L, Uh, the fell deeds of his great warriors. And Theoden, the king, says, fell deeds awaken, now for wrath, now for ruin, now for the red dawn. And and that's kind of what's going on here in Psalm 98. This is the part of God's revelation that a lot of us find uncomfortable. I want to say that right from the get-go. As a Christian, um, from the very beginning when I converted, I've had a hard time with the fell deeds of God. And they seem in some ways incompatible with the life of Jesus and uh, his peacefulness, uh, his, uh, you know, non-resistance, his non-retaliation, his death on the cross. It seems like how can you match these things with the character of Jesus? And so if this is a hard part of the Bible for you, then uh, you're in good company. I'm sure that you and I are not the only two that have struggled with this here. This is challenging, especially in today's world. I think if we lived in the Middle East, it would be less challenging Uh, If we lived uh, in other parts of the globe, it would be less challenging. But for us, as we are, it's hard. And I've come to, over the years, embrace these parts of the Bible and even to enjoy them. And that's kind of what I want to encourage for us today. that, um, That we not only accept these victories of God, but actually that we give praise to God for these victories. The victories of the divine warrior. And so I want to look at those two things. First of all, just talking about what these kind of victories are. And really the first verses of the psalm, verses 1 through 3, are about that. And then from 4 to the end, you get into the, um, the way that the psalmist reacts to the great deeds of God with uh, these breaking forth into joyous songs, seeing praises, having the entire creation join with God in praise. So those two things, the victory of God and then uh, the praise to God for his victory. So it begins with... The marvelous things that God has done. Uh, I love that phrase in verse 1. The marvelous things. 
that God has done. It's a, it's a word that also could be translated wondrous. It's used in uh, two pregnancy narratives of the Bible. When God tells Abraham's wife, Sarah, that she's about to be pregnant, she's 100 years old, she laughs at God. And then if you know that story, what does God say? He says, uh, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I've always loved that phrase. Is anything too marvelous for God? That's what he says to Sarah when she laughs at him. And then he comes later on to uh, another woman that shouldn't be able to be pregnant, uh, the Virgin Mary. God says she's going to be pregnant. She hesitates. She doesn't laugh like Sarah, but she does hesitate, understandably so. And then God says this. He says, nothing is too wonderful for God, which I'm sure it's the same idea. I mean, you know, in both cases, God is addressing someone who's going to have this fantastic, marvelous pregnancy. And so the same phrase, nothing is too marvelous for God. So the word marvel, uh, which, you know, obviously is used in the comic strip. Marvel in the Bible has something to do with um, the supernatural. I think that's why it's called Marvel Comics. But it's, it's, uh, it's something outside of the cosmos, of the realm of nature, that is uh, impinging on to nature or breaking through the barrier that we think of around nature. And so um, it is something coming in from outside. That's a marvel. It's a wonder. The Bible doesn't actually use the word miracle. It uses the word uh, marvel and wonder. It's like nature being stretched to the very limit and then kind of breaking. And if you're like me, I was, um, I was a science major in college, and so I had a hard time with marvels and miracles and wonders. And if you have a hard time with the supernatural, then uh, just take your mind back to, to creation. Because uh, I think everybody would agree, uh, whether you're a believer or not, that, that there had to be something outside of nature that started nature. Nature didn't just come into existence on its own. So there's a great marvel right there. And if God can do that, then certainly he can cause the Virgin Mary to become pregnant or Sarah to become pregnant at 100. In fact, Jeremiah makes this very point. The prophet says in chapter 32, verse 17, uh, Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too marvelous for you. So what he's saying is if God can make the heavens and earth out of nothing... Creation ex nihilo is what it's called. It's a, it's a very uniquely Jewish Christian doctrine. If God can make everything out of nothing, then what is too marvelous for him? Certainly a man being resurrected is not too marvelous for God if he can make everything out of nothing. And in the Old Testament, the greatest marvel, by far, it's sometimes been called the gospel of the Old Testament, is, is the Exodus story. And so almost all commentaries agree that Psalm 98 is addressing the the Exodus story. And so in verse 1 it says, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. And you see a similar phrase in Exodus 15 where uh, Moses is singing about God's victory when he threw the horse and rider into the Red Sea. And Moses says, Thy right hand, O God, glorious in power, shatters the enemy. And so this is the uh, archetype of all victories of the Old Testament. The great victory that is the standard of all victories is uh, the Exodus. In fact, uh, I read a book called Echoes of Exodus. It goes through almost every story of God's deliverance in the Bible. and just shows how again and again and again the biblical author is trying to show you this is another Exodus. It's another Exodus. This is another Exodus. Again and again and again. You can go through all these stories and see that um, it's always God delivering his people from their slavery into peace. 
uh, into some kind of shalom, some wholeness or righteousness and equity. One theologian called the Exodus the meaning of the history of Israel, a statement of Israel's faith. And another uh, theologian called the story of Jesus a, a great exodus or a second exodus. And this is what the theologian says, a major portion of the vocabulary used in the New Testament to express the saving work of God in Christ is drawn from the exodus event. So what I'm saying is that this uh, victory that Psalm 98 is talking about is the exodus, and not only the first exodus, but all the echoes of exodus that go throughout the Bible. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Uh, and notice the language of exodus here. God has rescued us out of the tyrannical authority of darkness. You know, think of Pharaoh there, of Egypt. God has rescued us from the tyrannical authority of darkness and changed us so as to bring us into a rightful rulership of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So what Paul is saying is we've been liberated out of Egypt, uh, the domain of darkness, the domain of Satan, the empire, and we've been delivered into the promised land of, uh, of God's people, of the church, of salvation and forgiveness. And these exoduses didn't stop happening at the end of the Bible. Uh, these exoduses keep happening. And so you should think about your own life and where you see these things happen. Uh, think about also history, the abolition of the slave trade. That's a great example. Uh, in the 1800s, uh, the abolition of the slave trade is an example of one of these exoduses that God has wrought. Or the Emancipation Proclamation of the mid-1800s, another exodus. The women's suffrage movement of the late 1800s, that's another deliverance. And the civil rights movement of the 60s, and on and on and on. You can think of what Gandhi did in India. All these are deliverances of God where God is again and again doing this thing where he rescues people from slavery and bondage and brings them into this new land of joy and peace and shalom. So think about your own life and where you have experienced the victories of God. Where have you seen these marvels um, of God? Definitely, I think about people I've seen who've been delivered from addictions, delivered from, if, if not a drug or alcohol addiction, certainly something maybe this, you wouldn't necessarily put in the case of addiction, but a strong uh, kind of overweening desire that takes, ca- takes you captive. Uh, even just like watching too many sports, I've seen people delivered from that kind of thing where they don't feel the need to do that anymore. Or pornography, you know, not necessarily an addiction, but looking at a lot of pornography and then God has delivered people. Someone was telling me the other day about how he was uh, just feeling just overwhelmed with jealousy and competition and how God just delivered him, uh, mostly through the prayers of God's people. Um, Even relationships, the hostility that you have with your parents or your children or your brother right now or your sister or your wife or husband, God will deliver people from these things. You sometimes think that there's no way that this could ever happen. Your relationship's just too bad and God will suddenly make this amazing deliverance. And we can't forget these things because they happen, they happen all the time. Uh, Austin mentioned Gary Tuttle. I didn't know he was going to say that. He didn't know I was going to write this, but I was going to say that, you know, Gary Tuttle that, that Austin talked about, he ended his life, uh, you know, playing with children in here and uh, he would sometimes even like dance a little bit and uh, smile and he would come to the prayer meeting every Thursday. But if you had known him you know, several years before that, uh, you would not have recognized him. I didn't know him well, but I could tell that he was very angry. He was very bitter. Uh, he was full of pain, full of physical pain and emotional pain. 
And he was, uh, he was very isolated. And then many of y'all befriended him, and God delivered him. And you've seen things like that happen. If you didn't know Gary, you've, you've seen that happen, where people are just delivered. Think about medical marvels that are completely inexplicable to doctors. They might, they might give the drugs or do the surgery, but they say things like, I, I don't know, that's medically inexplicable. I have no idea how that happened. Impossibly rapid healings. Uh, people surviving things they should never survive. These are the things we should give God glory for and praise him for, these victories where God delivers people. I heard an interview with a doctor named Mary Neal, and she was an orthopedic surgeon. She had no faith at all. She was completely blasé spiritually. She was apathetic. In 1999 in southern Chile, she was in a, a kayaking accident where she drowned. For 12 minutes, her, her kayak was pinned under the water, a huge waterfall. She got pinned down there, 12 feet under, uh, 12 minutes. And her legs broke off backwards the wrong way. Her knees bent the wrong way. And she just kind of floated out downstream. They found her body downstream, 12 minutes underwater. She came back to life. And she had this vision of Jesus in heaven. Um, You know, that kind of thing doesn't happen all the time, obviously. But they do happen. And it's clearly a marvel. And to try to act like these things don't happen in life is just foolishness. That God has this, uh, this right hand. He says he's got a right hand. Obviously a metaphor, but it's the hand of a warrior in battle. And God says his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. I think about someone like Gimli uh, wielding the, the great axe or Aragorn with a sword. Now, I don't know if that's dated or not, but uh, I looked up uh, Brienne of Tarth. I've never, never seen uh, the Game of Thrones, but apparently she has a sword named Oathkeeper with power matched by few. So that's a right hand, if you've seen that. Or call Drogo, who removes another man's throat with his bare hands. That's, that's a right hand. Again, these are violent images, but it, it helps to think about God defeating evil, defeating darkness, defeating Pharaoh, defeating whoever with his powerful right hand. I think it helps you to think about the slave masters in your life. Uh, hopefully no one's literally, but but the things that drive you and oppress you. And God's right hand is more powerful. Far more powerful. And it's not about raw strength. You know, it's not about, uh, like, you know how those giant uh, defensive linemen will just crush a quarterback? Like, Terrell Suggs crushing Tom Brady. And then they, like, stand over them and they flex their muscles. And they uh, look down on them and they say something to them. This is not the way that God's strength works. It's, it's, it's verse 3. It's always about faithfulness and loyalty so all his victories all of his redemption all of his rescues all of his marvels they're in the service of of salvation he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of israel it's like if my daughter Rosabelle saw uh, my son cooper being bullied on the playground you know at whitaker elementary school they went and some kid is like taunting cooper and kicking him and then Rosabelle just comes up and just Hurls the kid to the ground. That's more like that never happened. But if it hit, I would love that to have happened. But if it if it did happen, that's the way God feels about His people. He's out to protect them, and uh, the Exodus comes out of this intense loyalty to His people, which He calls Hesed or steadfast love, and people being bullied by Pharaoh and enslaved, and genocide was happening. And God says, "I will not let that continue to happen." And He becomes angry, and He comes in, and His right hand and His holy arm works salvation. And so when you discover that, you know, your, your neighbor hates you 
and is gossiping about you, or someone is stealing from you, unbeknownst to you, and they're taking all this money from you, didn't realize it was happening, or someone at work um, unjustly criticizes you, or a boss fires you, or someone humiliates you at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, on and on these ways that we get uh, offended, attacked. Just, it's very important to know that God is uh, always looking over you as, as a bodyguard, as someone who is loyal to you, is intensely, fiercely loyal, so he does not let people just mess around with you. He doesn't let that happen. Um, you can be absolutely sure of God's salvation. It's not one of those things you have to just wonder about and hope for. Look at verse 3. Clearly the supreme objective of God, it seems like in everything, is to show the whole earth that he saves very well. It says he, in, in verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And if you notice in verse 2, what he wants is to make known his salvation. And it says in the Exodus story, he wanted the Egyptians to know. He wanted the Canaanites to know. He wanted the Amorites to know. He wanted the Midianites to know. He wanted... Jethro to join in and Rahab to join in. A lot of the Egyptians joined in the parade out of Egypt. So he's, he's saving so that everyone will know that he's a great savior and join in the salvation. And so in verse 2, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. So he wants people in Thailand and Turkey and Greece and Italy and Switzerland and France and England to know that he is a great savior, that he's righteous. And in Chinese... Arabic, Farsi, Spanish, Portuguese, Luisi has just had the New Testament translated into that language, that Ugandan language. Uh, God wants every language to know, uh, every tribe, every people, every, every clan, even the Milner clan, my own family. Uh, he broke in. He brought salvation. He wanted our whole family to know the salvation. The whole universe seems to be created to shine his glory. And not to show off, again, it's not, don't think of the uh, defensive lineman. Think of God wanting to shine on everyone, just the beauty and the marvel of his light. I think about a, a really bleak area of the world, you know, this time of year, like Scotland. I lived in Scotland. Northern Scotland, this time of year, is very bleak. And I imagine, like, at 5 p.m. in mid-November uh, or something, just this piercing sunlight like noonday sunlight breaking in. That's, it's for the sake of the people there. He wants to show his glory for everyone's sake. He wants the whole earth to be full of the knowledge of the glory of God for the joy of the people. And so that's, that's the first point. The marvelous, steadfast love and faithfulness of God, his victories, his deliverances in your life, these exoduses that he, he brings about in your life. And the second point is that if that's true, if he does that, then obviously we should respond with praise. We, we have to respond with gratitude. It makes no sense not to do that. And so in verse 4, the psalmist begins this litany of praise. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. That's three commands in case you didn't get the first two. Make a joyful noise. Break forth into song and sing praise. Three very strong commands. And this is kind of odd. Think about asking your children, uh, if you're a parent, 
uh, commanding them to break forth into joyous song, or commanding your child to uh, make a joyful noise. A command about something like that seems like it's impossible. You can command someone not to steal, and you can command someone not to covet, and you can command someone not to murder, but how do you command someone to sing praise and to break forth in joyous song? And to make a joyful noise to the Lord. How do you make that command? And it's actually all over the Psalms that God makes these commands. These are not suggestions. I would really enjoy it if you did this. These are are commands like the Ten Commandments that we read. Uh, And and God God is saying, as Jesus said, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That means that your your very first objective every day is to... uh, Find yourself praising God and rejoicing in God and even singing to God. That this is not a minor thing. This is not like a little optional sidebar part of our lives. A little recreation. Making a joyful noise or breaking forth into song. That is not something that you're allowed not to do. God is so great and so worthy and so marvelous that uh, it makes no rational sense whatsoever not to do this. In fact, in heaven, in Revelation 5, 8, it says that the four living creatures, the 24 elders, I don't know what those things are, but they're obviously very powerful. They're very magnificent creatures. They're, they're intelligent. They're brilliant creatures. And they are falling down before the Lamb. And they're playing the guitar. And they're singing a new song. Worthy are you. And it goes on and on and on. So, you know, if that's what they're doing... Certainly that's what we should be doing now. Singing new songs. It says, uh, sing to the Lord a new song. And so God doesn't want just old songs. He doesn't just want praise that is written 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago. He, he wants creative praise now. So not like the Bee Gees who never really changed, they never transitioned, or Journey, or uh, Justin Bieber. Uh, these, these are people who never really transitioned into a new, they didn't break into a new genre. But like the Beatles... Always writing new material and experimenting with, with new sounds and pushing the envelope, new instruments. That's what God wants. And he, he is so worthy that it requires a new song to sing to him. And I love the fact that Austin has written many new songs. I would love for more people to write new songs. Um, we always need to be singing these new songs. And it, in verse 1, it, the breaking forth suggests that it's, it's uh, robust, that it should be done with gusto. That mumbling through the words is not enough for God. That you need to push through the fatigue. And I know it's hard sometimes to sing. It really actually does take physical energy to sing. You can embarrass yourself by singing. Um, A lot of people just don't like, they just say, I don't like singing. Now, that's actually not a reason not to sing. But I can understand why you might not like to sing. But you've got to push through these things. And if you say, I have a terrible voice... um, I'm embarrassed to sing. That, these are, the command is still there. You know, break forth in a joyous song. You might have uh, disabilities where you have a really hard time doing that, but that doesn't mean you don't do it. That means it's just going to be harder for you to do it. But still, it's a command. Sing praises to the Lord. And I know that um, it's very sad. I was reading uh, about church, church growth experts and really, oftentimes, really large churches. They actually say, uh, turn the music way up so that people don't have to hear themselves singing. And certainly they don't want to hear their neighbor singing. And so that's why in a lot of these churches it's just so loud you can really barely hear anything but the band. 
And it's very sad uh, that, that that would be true because singing is so intensely pleasurable to God. And he would hope that it would be to you too and that you would want to hear yourself and certainly your neighbor singing. And if there's anything you can do to improve your singing, you know, go, go for it. Uh, get voice lessons, whatever you need to do. Um, practice these things before you get here. But uh, this is, again, this is, not, this is not a small thing to sing to God. He even says, I want you to make a bunch of instruments uh, because your voices are not enough. Um, there are churches that only sing with their voices. They're a cappella. They don't use instruments. I don't really see how that could be when verse 5 is so clear that you're supposed to sing praise with a lyre. That's like a guitar and a trumpet and a horn. But he could have also put cello. He could have put uh, electric guitar. He could have put acoustic guitar. Snare drum would fit. Uh, a mandolin. A, uh, a trumpet obviously would fit. You know, Kevin Beck brings up that Moog synthesizer. It's a very strange sound that it makes. But I think even that could fit into this list of different instruments that we should sing with. And so every new instrument is just a delight to God. Just crazy instruments. He loves, he loves all these different ways of making sound. He lists them there. Because it's, uh, it's such a big deal to both sing and to make, uh, to make sounds from instruments together. He, he loves that. It's a big deal. It's a big deal because it's bigger than humans. It's actually, uh, it's, it's somehow, it's like transhuman or uh, it's cosmic even, you might say. The entire chapter like snowballs so that by the end of it, you're getting the sea and the rivers and the hills all singing praises to God. And I thought about the Little Mermaid and the um, Under the Sea song, if you've seen that. If you haven't seen that, then think about um, Beauty and the Beast be our guest. But a lot of these Disney songs, at first it's just like this one person singing. So in this case, it was Sebastian the Lobster, and he's singing to Ariel. But then the shrimp comes in. If you've seen, I went back and looked at it. And then a blowfish comes in, all these snails come in, and a sturgeon, and a ray, and a carp, and a stingray, and an octopus. And by the end, it's like 50 fish that are just singing with Sebastian the Lobster. And I think that the psalmist is saying that if humans start to sing, then all creation is just going to join in like this giant chorus coming behind us in our wake. Let the sea roar and all the fish inside of the sea. Think about fish just roaring praise to God. I like that line, the angels roar. Think about all these fish roaring praise to God. The world and all who dwell in it, verse 7. That means that in the plains and the mountains and the forests and the jungles... There's praise being given. And when the animals there are squawking and roaring and bleeding and snorting, this is part of the praise of God. The world and all that dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. When you, when you hear that sound of a rushing mountain stream, which just brings me so much peace to hear that. Or like a huge rapids, a massive rapids, huge waterfall. Uh, those are sounds of, of, of clapping somehow. Uh, it's figurative language, but... They are giving praise to God. And then the hills singing for joy together. I think about the high winds that you sometimes hear, like in a mountain crag or pine forest when uh, it's like a snowstorm or a rainstorm. And just the sound of the, of the leaves brushing against one another. The, the point is that we are called to lead creation in raucous, uproarious, extravagant praise. And the whole thing drives to the very last verse. And this is kind of where it gets weird. And I don't know if you thought it was weird when Gail read this or not, but the whole thing comes to a climax with verse 9. 
And that little word for means that everything that he's just said about the praise is because of this. You know, give thanks, give praise, break forth in joy of song, all this stuff, because, and you would think it might say he would save the earth, but it says he will judge the earth. And we've just got to get okay with talking about judgment. It's not like he who shall not be named. It's not that kind of thing. Judgment is a good thing. Judgment is a thing that Christians need to delight in. The Jews absolutely delighted in judgment. Because judgment, the coming judgment at the end of time for the Jews was God's victory over all unrighteousness, over all inequity, all the terrible inequities that we see, the the discrepancy between rich and poor, educated and uneducated, the ones who get health care and don't. These things, they might not make you angry, but they make God furious. And so when he comes in the end, he is going to judge the world with righteousness, in verse 9, and the pe- people with equity. And I would just say, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want God to deliver the world out of slavery into peace, into shalom? This is the great, this is like the final exodus, where he destroys everything that is opposed to his glory. In Habakkuk 2.14, the vision is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, that One day God is just going to clean house. And he's going to make this world brand new. And I love love seeing people flip houses and like renovate a house, an old house with beautiful lines being renovated. But if you're going to fix up a dilapidated house, it's like final judgment for the wallpaper or um, a termite-infested floor or rotting old cabinet or mildewed uh, tiles. You know, if God is going to bring judgment, then some things have got to come down and be pulled down and torn down. Any, anything that is not willing to ultimately give praise to God, any person or thing, has got to go. Because in the end, there will be nothing but praise and glory and honor to God. There's no way else it could be. There's no other way it could be. Think about Syria right now. What if you could have uh, ISIS... Uh, just immediately wiped out. All the people that are wreaking havoc in Syria, destroying the economy, destroying people's lives, killing people, raping people. What if, what if you could just push a button and, and, and ISIS would be wiped out? I mean, would that not be a marvelous victory? Instant righteousness and equity and a kind of an exodus. And so what I'm saying is that the last judgment is the greatest thing that will ever happen to this planet, where God is going to clean house and, it, and, the, and the trees and the oceans, the chickens and pigs and cows will be so happy that the earth will be clean and renovated. And um, just imagine all the people living in peace where the earth is free of, of deep ingratitude and a refusal to give God glory and praise and entitlement, uh, boredom, you know, uh, just rapacious, greedy, inordinate desire where there's no honor, there's no um, reverence, uh, there's no breaking forth into singing. The, uh, the great hymn, Joy to the World, is based on the psalm, and the, f- the phrase, he comes to make his blessings flow as, as far as the curse is found, is, is coming from this idea. There's no, way that, there's no way blessings could flow as far as the curse is found without judgment, without tearing things down. And so the judgment is great news, but... Of course, it's also potentially bad news. If you are the wallpaper or the rotting floor, or if you're an ISIS, if you fight against joy and wallow in melancholy and refuse to sing and want nothing of the praise of God, and God is very patient, 
But ultimately, uh, God's not going to let that keep happening. And, and so in, in, that, in that situation, you need, we all need protection, don't we? I mean, who of us praises God enough? How, how often are we thankful to God and breaking forth in the joyous song? I mean, nobody. And so that's where this meal comes in. Because this, in many ways, if, if you put your trust in Christ, this is your last judgment. This is where uh, the judgment came on anyone who entrusts themselves uh, to the Savior. Because when he was crucified, that was the judgment of God coming down early.